Thank you, Ivy. I brought back great memories. Ivy would often uh, sing that during revival meetings we would preach. So she's been singing that. She's been about that big. And um, so, so thankful for her continued faithfulness to serve the Lord through music ability. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. This morning we're going to be looking at what's commonly known as the Paul Sermon on Mars Hill. But before we look into our text, I want you to kind of use your imagination with me. We're going to put this in a, in a modern day application setting and then we're going to move back towards the Apostle Paul. Let's imagine that you started a Bible study, maybe in your home or at work. There's just been a number of you that have met, you've talked about things. And then let's say that one day you're, you're at a coffee shop and... And that coffee shop is kind of a place sometimes where people sit and chat, ideas are exchanged, and you kind of get into a gospel conversation. You begin to share your testimony and share a little bit about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it kind of becomes a more frequent thing. You're back at that coffee, sh- coffee shop often, and you're, at, and you're debating questions, you're asking questions, you're, you're also listening to questions, you're sharing the gospel, you're having these conversations. One day, a couple of professors from Georgia Tech and Emory University, professors of religion, world science, and language arts, and other such subjects comes in. They begin to ask you questions. They're asking you questions about religion and, and philosophy, life, and you're sharing that with them. And one of those professors actually happens to sit on the council of the city of Atlanta, and they ask you, hey, would you come to the city council We'll have an open forum. The public will be invited, and we'd like for you to share more about this message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That is exactly what happens with the Apostle Paul in Athens. He's by himself. His team is not with him. And as he's been discussing with the Jews in the synagogue about Messiah and to the God-fearing Gentiles that were there, then he also is going into the Agora, into the marketplace, and there he is sharing. And then he's invited to the Oropagus, to this city council, um, to hear, for people to be able to hear this message because as Luke gives us in his editorial comments, which we know are included by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Athenians always wanted to hear the very newest thing. 15-minute old news was old. They wanted the brand new news, the right now news. And so uh, they, they loved to hear the latest and greatest on everything. And so they had come to listen. So as Luke summarizes this passage, uh, and, and from the essence of this message, because as we're looking at this message, it seems long, but if we were to read through it straight, this message that Paul shares, it only takes about two minutes. What preacher do you know that gets up and only preaches for two minutes? Not this one, right? And I don't think that Paul preached for two minutes either. I think that what Paul is doing here is even though he's taken us through this message, he's really, though, though he would have, I'm sure, been quoting the apostle Paul verbatim in some areas, I don't think it is the complete message that Paul preached that day. But it includes the essence of that message. And as we look at the essence of the message that's recorded here for us in Acts chapter 17, let's learn how we too can leverage every divine appointment to share the gospel, whether it's to an individual, whether it's to a small group, or whether it's to a large crowd. So look with me in verses 22 and 23 as Paul begins his address. He says, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. Now that's interesting because... How did Jewish rabbis teach? They sat down. And then their followers would form kind of a semicircle around them and it would kind of fan out like in a seashell shape most of the time. 
But here, Paul stands in the midst of the people of the Areopagus. Why? Because that's how the Athenians would have had public address. Remember, Paul has been here for some weeks. He's been in a lot of these discussions. He knows how this works, but he is able to relate with them even by standing up. So really the first point is understand the people with whom you're sharing the gospel. And even in the very first part of this, by the very fact that he stands and he presents instead of sitting as a rabbi would teach, shows that he had an understanding of the context not only of the culture, but of the way of thinking and the way that people did things in Athens. And he says, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that ye are in all things too superstitious. Really, this could be translated, you're more reverently religious than most of the other Greeks. You fear the gods and you serve them, is what he's saying in these two verses, verses 22 and 23. The word that the King James translates too superstitious is an accurate translation. It can be used in a negative sense, but it can also be used in a positive sense or in a complimentary sense. And I believe that's how Paul is using it here. I think he's saying you are very religious. I think he may be saying you are too religious. Uh, you have all these gods. You have all these temples. You, you, you worship, you worship, you worship. Uh, you're very superstitious. Would still been an accurate description. How did Paul know that? How could he say that with confidence as he's standing up? Remember, the Oropagus was all these city leaders and there were all these people that were in authority and, and they decided matters both legal and philosophical and religious within the city proper and the area surrounding Athens. And so this is where Paul is. So how could he say with confidence that I perceive that you are in all things way, way deeply religious? Well, because of verse 23. For as I passed by, I beheld your devotions or the object of your devotions. What would that have been? That would have been the statues. Remember what we said last week? There were so many statues of false gods throughout the city of, of, of Athens that one ancient poet said, it's easier to find a god, speaking of a statue, than it is a man in the city of Athens. Kind of hyperbole. But emphasizing how many false gods they actually worshipped. And so he says, I, I notice the temples, I notice the statues, and I notice the altars. As a matter of fact, look at verse 23, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So basically what he is saying goes, he says in the next verse, him whom ye worship, ignorantly worship him, I declare unto you, don't mistake that as Paul saying, uh, somehow by proxy, by proxy, you are worshiping Yahweh. You're worshiping Jehovah God, okay? That's not what he's saying. Because to the unknown God was basically this idea of, in case there's a God we missed, this is an altar to that God. There was actually, there's a story um, that's been handed down. I'm not sure how accurate it is, but it was a legend in Athens that one day there was a great pestilence. There were people that were dying of some strange illness. And so finally one wise man gathered a herd of sheep and he decided with the people of Athens that we're going to let this, this sheep, this herd of sheep run through the city of Athens and wherever they stop, we're going to kill them and we're going to sacrifice them to the God whose temple or statue or altar is closest to that sheep. And apparently one sheep ran to this area where this, where this altar was and they were like, well, there's no God close by here, so it must be an unknown God. Maybe there's a God that we missed. And legend has it that once they offered that sheep to that unknown God, that the illness stopped. 
And again, that is just a legend. But they were so reverently worshipful. And don't you find that an interesting combination? Don't we often think of people who are philosophical as being anti-religious, like religion is for ignorant people, but we smart people are so philosophical, right? But these people in Athens were both philosophical and they were religious, religious really in a superstitious sense. But Paul has an understanding of these people. He says, as I'm walking by, I see it's obvious that you guys are, are, you you fear the God, you reverent, you worship. It's all around me. You even, you're so careful that you have an altar to an unknown God in case there's one you haven't known yet. And I want to tell you about that God. The God that you don't know yet. I want to declare him to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 22, Paul said this, I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. What was he talking about? Well, when witnessing to Jews, Paul respected their context and did not cause them to stumble over the gospel by acting like a Gentile. And when he was witnessing to the Gentiles, he did not hold to the custom or practice the custom of the Jews around them to act like a Jew. The context of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 tells us this. He did not compromise the message of the gospel or his personal testimony. Remember, Paul also wrote in the book of Acts, I seek to have a testimony always void of offense, a conscience void of offense toward God and man. How could he have a a conscience void of offense toward God if he was compromising truth, if he had changed at all the message of the gospel or done unethical or immoral things? in order for an opportunity to witness the gospel. It is never right, as one famous preacher said, to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right. Okay, so Paul's not saying, hey, listen, I will compromise and I'll do whatever I need to do so I can fit within the context to share the message of the gospel. I'll even change the gospel message a little bit so that people will make a decision because salvation is not about making a decision. It's about putting your faith in Jesus Christ, the living son of God. It is a personal transaction of trust. It is not some mere formality like a business transaction. You cannot clear clear your conscience by compromising with sin and justifying, well, it's for the gospel. But here's what he would do. He would change his approach based on the background. If you study Paul's message, his public addresses uh, to the Jews, he already begins with the foundation of the law because they knew the law. He does not do it with these Greeks because these Gentiles, most of them, these polytheistic heathen, if you will, did not have that scriptural context. We need to understand our audience. Now, how would Paul have really known how much of the scriptures that they knew? Well, first, by being going to the synagogue, he knew that many of the Jews there would have an understanding of the scriptures, and some of the God-fearing uh, Greeks would have had somewhat of an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. But then as he goes into the marketplace and he's talking with people, he understands these people have no clue of this. So he has to go all the way back to declare who God is, and he's going to do that. But before I get there, I want to kind of share a little illustration with you. Citizen Impact, Paul Smith, has a, has a ministry leader's day, usually at the end of February, and uh, we had one last week on a Tuesday. And so our pastoral team went, and uh, we were there for that day. And part of that day is then that you go over to the Capitol, and then you request to meet with your senator or with your representative, 
And it happened to be that the, that the senators were all in session and doing stuff. And so we went over, filled out the little yellow slip of paper, sent it in by a page. And, uh, and then our senators would come out. I got to talk to my senator and I shared with her how I would ask her and how our church that they were going to be voting on that day. And then some of our other uh, group uh, was still waiting to meet their senators. So I went over kind of around out of the hallway, kind of in more of the atrium area where there was a little more room because there were so many people there. Well, there were a bunch of LGBTQ people there and they were actually against one of the things that I was, and, and, and I believe Christians should be for, the REFRA, the Restoration of Religious Freedom Act that protects religious freedoms. And the LGBTQ community was against that because they're saying it could be, a, be abused against their community, which of course I believe is a twisting of, of truth, of reality. Anyway, as I'm standing there, I'm waiting for my group to come in, and there are like four or five people dressed up in like religious garb, like Parsons, you know, with a backwards collar kind of a thing and the black outfits. They weren't Catholics, but they were from some religious organization, and they were there to support these LGBTQ people. Now, by the way, let me stop and put a parenthesis here. I love the gay community. I love LGBTQ people. You know why? Because God loves them and he died on the cross for their sin. And we need to love them. And I'm going to make a com another comment to prepare our church uh, at the end of this little illustration. If God reminds me to, I want to. Anyway, I'm standing there and, and this lady pastor comes up to me from the United Methodist Church. She goes, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm from the United Methodist Church. I'm here to support these people. Who are you, and who are you with? And I said, well, I'm Pastor Todd of Brain Baptist Church in Lilburn, and I'm with Citizen Impact. And she goes, oh, so we're kind of not on the same side. I said, that's right. <laughs> and you know, one of the first things she said to me, I can't share the whole conversation for sake of time, but one of the things she said to me, because she said, young people from churches like yours are coming to churches like mine because they're suicidal because of guilt. I said to her, denial of sin is never a solution for guilt. What I told her was this, Jesus' forgiveness is the answer for guilt. See, she would preach God is love. And folks, is God love? First John 4, right? God is love. So is God love? Yes. But she would say, God is love. He accepts you as you are. You're not doing anything wrong. You don't need to change. Whereas we would say, based on the scriptures, God is love and God is holy. And God loves you and he gave his son to die on the cross to cleanse you from your sin, to give you eternal life, to free you from your guilt. There's a big difference in those two messages. Amen. Yes. You see, we preach... That God forgives sin through repentance and faith in his name. God manifested his love not by approving sin, but by cleansing from sin. And I thought, and I didn't say this to this lady, but it immediately came to my thought. And her group came and she needed to go. And I could tell my group was coming, so it kind of ended the conversation. But here's my thought, folks. We better be prepared and ready because there are a lot of people that are going to detransition from LGBTQ. 
There are people who are going to come here whose lives have been literally wrecked by sin. And the people that they think love them and are accepting them are their enemies because the Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And when a United Methodist pastor gives the kiss of acceptance of saying, you're okay as you are, God loves you, you just need to deal with this, it's, you misunderstand what guilt is. And those people realize that's not the answer and they are still searching for the truth. We can love them with the truth and say, Jesus loves you and he'll cleanse you from your sin. He'll give you everlasting life. He will not just put your, your life back together. He'll make you an entirely new creation. Amen. And you will be a trophy of his grace and you will get to spend eternity with him and your whole life will be transformed because God has good things in store for you through his grace. Folks, we better be ready. You better be ready for the people that you meet. Because you know what? The only difference between that person and you is, is you and I have been saved by the grace of God and they have not yet been. But God can save them. And we need to pray for them. And we need to be ready. But this brings me to my second point. Because she would say, God is love. Right? And that does not go far enough. And so we need to, second point is clarify who the God is of the gospel is. And Paul takes a bunch of verses to do this. So we're going to run through this. I'll try to go quickly for sake of time, but I don't want to rush too far or to run too quickly ahead of you because I want you to be able to get this. I hope this equips you and helps you as you're sharing the gospel with folks. First of all, we need to understand the people with whom we're sharing the gospel. All right. And there are times when we, all we can do is share our testimony. We can add out a gospel tract. And that's as far as we get, as far as an opportunity. But folks, we need to be seeking to build relationships with people. I mean, even Paul, he went, uh, and, and the Greek tenses is that he was continually going back to the synagogues, having these Bible studies and going to the marketplace and sharing the gospel. And by the fact, matter of fact, the Bible says that when he was done here, he left. And we'll talk about that in a minute, in a few minutes. But I believe he went back to the marketplace and kept on sharing the gospel. He kept encouraging those who put their faith in Christ, now discipling them. So you got to understand who you're sharing the gospel with so that you have an understanding of how to approach them with the gospel. And sometimes that takes several weeks. I mean, just laying the foundation, things, Bible knowledge that you and I sometimes take for granted, a lot of folks around us don't have it, even in the Bible belt. And so where does Paul go? Look with me beginning, if you would, in verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands, as though he had need of anything, seeing that he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times beforehand and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. God is creator. Amen. The Bible says in Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. So understand that when we look from this context in verse 24, God is creator 
And because God is creator, God rules over all creation. And because God is creator, also in verse 24, he is the ultimate authority. If he made this world, then he sets the rules. And not only is he the ruler over all creation, he is the owner of all creation. He is the ultimate authority. He's the owner of all he created. And then because he is God the creator, nothing in creation is equal to him. God transcends his creation. And so nothing is like our God. There is no one, there is nothing that can from nothing create something. Only God can do that. Only God is eternal. There is, science is false when they make the assumption that matter is eternal. Matter is not eternal. God created matter. Light is not eternal. God created light. God only is eternal. And God is not like his creation. God transcends it. That means... God transcends anything and everything created, including man. And it means that God cannot be contained within physical limitations. That's why Paul says this creator, God, does not dwell in temples. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 18, as Solomon is dedicating the temple, this beautiful, glorious temple, one of the most expensive and beautiful buildings ever built in the history of mankind, Solomon is praying and he says, in 2 Chronicles 6, 18, But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. But he says it's a place where we can meet with God. And it's a place where we can worship God. But God cannot be contained within a building because God is omnipresent. God is spirit. God is infinite. God cannot be contained within physical limitations. Because God is creator, he needs nothing. Go back and review verse 25 with me. Neither is worshipped, and that word worshipped is the word served. Neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing that he giveth to all life and breath and all things. God needs nothing. You know, when, when my family and I, we went to Bolivia, I think it was in 2015, 2016, and, um, you know, it, it's sad there because... In Bolivia, they believe that there are gods in the heavens or in the sky, gods on the earth or that roam the earth, and then gods in the earth. And so when you go to the cemeteries, you will see that all over by their relatives, they actually put out food sacrifices to appease the gods to leave alone the soul of their, pers- their, their, their person, whoever it is in their family that has died. God doesn't need our food. God needs nothing. The very covenant name of God, I am that I am, says it all. Not only that is eternal, but he is the eternal self-existing one. He needs nothing. He doesn't need to be served by men's hands, and there's nothing we can do for him or give him that he needs. Amen. God does not need a man-made dwelling. God does not need man's help or anything that man can Give Because he is creator, he is also sustainer. He gives to all things life and breath. When I think of this, he, he gives life. Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus Christ, according to John 1, is creator God. 
Life, physical life, is a miracle and it's a gift from God. But folks, none of us could live for a split second unless God was sustaining us. He giveth to all life. And another thing that he gives is breath. I now know the value of God giving breath. In 1997, I contracted double pneumonia. And I was so weak, I couldn't feed myself. And then in 2021, as some of you know, I got hit with a Delta variation of COVID and I wound up in the hospital again with COVID pneumonia. Let me tell you, and when you can't breathe, that breath is very precious. And you begin to realize, God, you just gave me another breath. God gives to all things life and breath. He sustains all things in his creation. Think even of this. Because God is not, as some would theorize, the great clockwinder who, who put all things into motion and then he steps back. No, the Bible says by him all things consist, literally hold together. If God let things go, we would have an, a nuclear explosion so great, everything would be absolutely disintegrated and destroyed pulverized, annihilated, whatever word you want to use, it would not any longer exist. All God has to do is let go. But God holds all things together by his great power. And think about this, even within nature, think of the symbiotic relationships, right? There's all kinds of symbiotic relationships. Do you realize that if there weren't certain bacteria and bugs and things that, that in the forest, when the leaves die and they fall to the ground, if nothing happens to them, they'd never decompose into the soil that would actually be nutrient for new seeds and new life and new growth. But God puts all that there. I mean, we would have, we would have piles to the sky of leaves if it weren't for what God has put within his very creation, just the cycles of life. Just think of the cycles of rain and, and of, of God watering the earth and then of evaporation. All that is part of the cycles that God has orchestrated. Not only has he set that in motion, not only has he created that, he sustains it, he manages it, he oversees it constantly. What a great God that we serve. Amen. Because God has created creator he created people now look with me in verse 26 to 29 as paul begins to bring this home not only is god the creator and the sustainer he's the creator and sustainer of people he hath made of one blood verse 26 all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth how did god do that by the way he formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and man adam became a living soul and God caused Adam to be put to sleep, for God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him in help meet for him. And underneath the anesthesia of God putting Adam to sleep, he did surgery and removed a rib from Adam's side and formed Eve. And God brought her to the man, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Of course, we know that as time and generations went on, the sin on earth became so exceedingly great that God repented that he had made man and he destroyed the earth with a universal flood. The only human beings to survive that universal flood were Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. But God literally created of all, from all, na of all nations from one man, from one blood. Moving on in our passage, 
and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. God also created the ex- controls the existence of civilizations. For instance, think of this. You remember Daniel in the book of Daniel has these visions. Remember one, one of the things, actually Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of the image, right? The head's made of gold and the shoulders and the chest are made of silver, right? And the middle part is made of bronze and then the legs and the feet are made of, of iron mixed with clay, right? And king has no clue who that is. And Daniel goes into detail and he says, well, the head of gold is you. It, it is this empire of Babylon. And then what was the next one? The Persians, right? Okay, the Medo-Persian Empire. Then after that, it was the Grecian Empire. And even there, the prophecy goes into such details that Greece is divided into four kingdoms that fight each other. Remember when Alexander the Great died? His four generals, they fought. God told Daniel that hundreds of years before that ever happened. B.I., and then, of course, the Roman Empire. That is the empire with the feet partly of clay and partly of iron. And God, through Daniel, God prophesied that hundreds of years. Why? Because God has established the echo, the, the epics, he's, the civilizations, the empires. All of that comes underneath God's authority. Matter of fact, Paul writes to the Romans and he says, let every soul be subject unto the power, higher powers, Romans 13. The powers that be are ordained of God. The Bible tells us that God pulls down kings and he sets up kings. All of this is underneath creator God's power. He created all people from one man. He controls the existence of civilizations. And then look at this. Then Paul comes down to something even more personal. God created man to seek him. Look, if you would, in verse 27. That they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. What's he talking about there? I want to spend a little time on this this morning, just a little bit. He's talking about natural revelation. He's talking about, the Bible says, uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. In Romans, what does Paul write to the Romans? He's he says that the creation of all things is clear. God is, is evident through all of creation, right? So that man is without excuse. The things of creation speak to the evidence of God. Even Hebrews 11, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And so the physical world around us evidences the existence of God. In natural revelation, man can in a limited way understand that God is that there is one true God who created and who sustains all things. I do not believe it's sufficient in itself for salvation, but I believe that it prepares for special or specific revelation, that is, the gospel being shared. The word for feel, to feel after, is to touch. It's a palpable assurance of God's presence that is everywhere in the world that he has made. So when people, that idea of if happily they might feel after them, the idea is that you can literally reach out and when you touch creation, you are touching the evidence of the existence of God. And there is an assurance in the fact that God exists through the things which he has created. Happily kind of misconstrues the Greek to our modern ears. The sense in the Greek actually is one of expectancy. 
And God expects man to respond to natural revelation. God is not hiding. He has revealed himself. He has declared himself in nature and he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. One commentator writes, the difficulty of finding God outside the pale of revealed uh, religion lies not in his distance from us, but in our distance from him through the blinding effect of sin. See, that's the idea. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whom the God, little G, speaking of Satan, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the gospel, which is the glorious image of Christ, should shine unto them. So man is walking around. The evidence of God is around him. The, the evidence, the natural revelation says there is one true God. But Satan's put the spiritual blinders on him, even though he's not far from every one of us. Our sin nature has blinded us to the reality of this personal God And yet the glorious gospel is the light that shines. And that's why Jesus said to those of us who are his followers, you're the light of the world. Now remember, Jesus said he's the light of the world. So really, what are we technically? We are reflectors of the light. Think of it this way. Jesus is the son of righteousness. Amen. The Bible entitles him that. So we are like the moon. Jesus is the sun. Our lives are to reflect Christ. For whom he did foreknow, them he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So as we, in our character, in our demeanor, in our responses, in showing the love of Christ, in living out the holiness and the truth of Christ in our lives, the way that we daily conduct our lives, we are the reflector of the character and the love and the truth of Christ into the dark night of this spiritually dark world. And we are to shine the brightness of the truth so that men can come to Christ. Now, only the Holy Spirit can convince of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But we are the messengers, and with our lips and by our lives, we are to be reflecting and proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ, creator God, who because he is holy, will eternally punish every man's sin, but also is love and gave Christ to die on the cross and shed his blood for our sin. At this same Jesus who died and was buried, rose again and conquered death in the grave and is alive forevermore and has the power and the authority to forgive sin and to give eternal life if one will simply from their heart believe on that and call out by faith. And that brings me to our third point, and that is to invite people to turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Look in verses 30 to 34. In verse 30, in the times of this ignorance, let's look back. Okay, let's go back. Uh, verse 29, for then, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, it actually quotes a Greek ancient poet who said that. And we are the offspring of God in the sense that God has created all men. God gives life to all men. You know what? We're not all the children of God though in the spiritual sense. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? Man, they were religious. Man, they were keepers of the law. If you want to establish your righteousness through good works, the people that had the best shot at it were the Pharisees. Now, they were still hopeless sinners, but they went about trying to impress God on their own merits of their own righteousness. Problem is, the Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, we all are as an unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Our merits are valueless, actually reprehensible before God when it comes to eternal life. We can't earn eternal life through our good character and our good works. We've sinned. We've broken God's law. And it is an offense to a holy God who gave his own son to die on the cross when we try to present our good works as a substitute for the finished work of Christ on the cross for salvation. 
Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse from sin. Only Jesus Christ can forgive us and reconcile us to God. But there is the sense in which all, God loves all men. God so loved the world, John three sixteen, And yes, God has given life to all men. And God sustains that physical life to all men. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, in John 8, 44, ye are of your father the devil. They were very religious, but they were not trusting Jesus Christ as Messiah. And he said, you're not the children of God. You're the children of the devil. Why? They were still dead in trespasses and sin. But we are, in the sense, the children of God in the fact that God has created all of us. God loves us, and God desires to have a relationship with all of us. And he made the way for us to be reconciled to him through the sacrifice of his son. So we need to invite people to turn to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's continue. Because he hath appointed a day. Look at this in verse 30. And at this times of ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. By the way, the word looked at, mean, winked, means to overlooked. And the idea is that God, because God never overlooks sin. All sin is punished. There's never been a sin that, does not, that will not be dealt with by the justice of God. So, What's Paul saying? God is overlooking sin? No, not God's not overlooking sin. He's winking at it as if he's condoning it? No, God always condemns sin. So what's he talking about? God in mercy did not immediately execute the sentence of judgment on our sin. Amen? Amen. Because if he did, where would we all be right now? We'd be in hell. First time we sinned, even by thought. The Bible says the very thought of the wicked is sin. First time we thought an evil thought. Every time we had a wrong attitude, the first time we committed a sinful act, we would be in the lake of fire right now. And what he's saying is that God, in his mercy and patience, did not destroy entire civilizations. But in his mercy has spared them so that at this point, the message of Jesus as Messiah comes. Men have opportunity to repent of the sin and to put their faith in Jesus Christ because he is coming as the righteous judge. And if they don't repent, they will perish. And that's what Paul preaches here. Because he hath, verse 31, appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Well, what man hath the Father ordained? Here it is. Whereof he hath given assurance. Here's that verification unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. Whom did the Father raise from the dead? Jesus Christ, the son, Jesus Christ is the one who will sit on the great white throne judgment. Jesus is the one who said in Matthew chapter seven, many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name, cast out devils in thy name, done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work in iniquity into everlasting judgment. Jesus is the righteous judge. You say, he's the savior. He is love. Yes. But he will also be the righteous judge. The same one who sacrificed himself on the cross so that you could receive mercy and grace and not have to suffer this penalty will execute this penalty because he is holy and just. And all authority has been granted to the son. Turn to sin and self and turn to Christ, the one true God God will hold created man, every man, accountable. You know, that's why evolution is so popular today. Because if we're just the product of some happenstance, 
chain of reactions of natural processes, then there's no God to which we must ultimately be held accountable. But if God is creator and if he gives life and if he sustains life, and if this is what he says, then every man will be held accountable. That's why evolution is such a popular religion. It's not a theory. It's a religion. Jesus, the Lamb of God, will judge every man. In John 5, 22 and 23, the Bible says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Now, when we look back here, it sounds like, and many Bible scholars believe, and I would agree with them, that Paul's message here is interrupted. Either that or Luke comes to the end of the essence of betraying the gospel message that Paul had preached because that is the essence that in this application the Holy Spirit wanted him to share. But it appears that Paul is interrupted and doesn't get to finish his message. And look, if you would, in verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So whether Paul was interrupted, as some believe, or as Luke intended the synopsis to be done, Paul concludes the message. He doesn't come back. He finishes. But there was enough of the gospel that some believed. Now some said, wow, they mocked him. Others said, we'll hear thee again of this matter. Some might have been sincere. Have you ever been talking to somebody uh, about the gospel and they say, I'd, I'd like to talk to you again about this? And you can tell they're sincere, right? They really intend that. And then there's others who you say, uh, you want to talk about this again? And they're like, oh, sure, yeah, I'd love to. And you know they're just being polite, right? But we don't know what their intention was. I believe it was probably mixed. I think some people were like, well, thank you very much, Paul. Maybe we'll get to hear you again. And they never really intended that. They were just being polite. I believe others really seriously said, man, you've given us a lot to think about. I'd like to hear more. And I'm sure that Paul would have loved to have met with them and shared more with them. Some mocked, some delayed the decision, but some believed. Now look at this. In verse 33, so Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed among them was Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So some at that point at that message, believed. But what does it say that Paul did in verse 33? He departed. When there was a response, even if he was interrupted, he did not demand that he get to finish what he was saying. He just trusted that what he had shared and the Holy Spirit allowed him to share, that God could take that and work conviction and people would be saved and some were. And I believe Paul also intended to stay at Athens to be able to follow up, especially since some said, we'll hear thee again of this matter. And Paul's prayer, I think, immediately was, oh Lord, may your Holy Spirit continue to work in the heart. Please don't let Satan snatch this seed. Please, Lord, prepare their heart. It may be good ground. It may find root. And Lord, help me to have opportunities to water the seed of the gospel. And Lord, I would rejoice to reap in the harvest. But God, thank you for this opportunity. And sometimes, folks, and I say this just to encourage you as we get ready to close, sometimes we just feel like, man, I would love to share so much more of the gospel. Especially if, if maybe you're on a flight somewhere and you get to talk a little bit and then something's interrupted and you don't get to finish and you think, man, I really wish I could have shared more with that person. 
You know, you can take comfort in the fact we have biblical evidence here that God uses what we say even if we feel it's incomplete. And his Holy Spirit, if you would, can fill in the blanks and can do that work. He's the only one that can do the work anyway. We're just the messenger. But God can use us. God can use that message. God can use others later. So let's be faithful with a gospel message. So, sum it up. If you were in Paul's place, what would you do? Well, stop, understand your audience. And by the way, how could Paul understand his audience? How could he understand who he was speaking to so he could relate with them and know how to approach them? He spent time with them and he observed them. We need to be people observers. We need to be alert. Uh, We need to get to know people so we have opportunities in building those relationships. And when we do get to share the gospel, we know where to start and we know how to approach it as God the Spirit would direct us. But even Paul, filled with the Spirit, looked around and he saw these things and took what he saw, even quoted one of their own poets. He understood Greek literature and culture and used those little things as part of his gospel presentation. And the Spirit used it. So, understand the people with whom you're sharing the gospel. Clarify who the God of the gospel is. And then invite people to respond to Christ. Invite them to turn from sin and turn to Christ in faith. The results are not our responsibility, but sharing the gospel is. And friend, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what Paul said here, I say to you, God has been patient. God's even allowed you, whether you are here in our midst physically or you're watching by way of live stream, God has left you alive. He's preserved your life to this point and let you heard this message for a reason. And I believe it's because God loves you and he wants to save you. And let me lovingly warn you that the Jesus Christ who loves you and died on the cross and shed his blood and suffered unspeakable agony for you, conquered death and rose again and will forgive you of your sin and save your soul for all of eternity is the same risen Jesus Christ who will sit on a judgment throne one day and condemn those who've rejected him to eternal death. I plead with you, trust him today. You say, I'll do like those people that the Bible said, I'll hear thee again of this matter. I understand that. I hope that you would, but I would rather you trust Christ today. For the Bible says, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You don't even know if you're going to live out today. So right now, while the Spirit of God is working, while this is fresh on your heart and mind, And God is showing you that you need to turn from your sin and yourself and you need to turn to Jesus Christ, the living Son of God. Won't you receive him as Savior today? Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be faithful with the gospel message. Clarifying who the God of the gospel is, understanding the folks with whom we're sharing the gospel and inviting them to turn from sin to faith in Jesus Christ. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? We will give an invitation this morning Will our associate pastors get ready at the back? Our musician will come and play a hymn of invitation. We'll stand in a moment. Our heads will be bowed. The musicians will play. You may not be familiar with an invitation in the church, so let me explain it really brief, briefly. Uh, we'll stand in a moment, heads bowed, as I just mentioned, and when our pianist begins to play, that's an indication that you uh, have an opportunity to take advantage of this invitation. And here's what I mean by that. We have our 
two associate pastors in the back. You can go to either one of them and say, I would like somebody to help me know for sure that Jesus has forgiven me of my sin. Or something like that. They'll know what you mean. They'll take you or they'll have someone take you to a quiet place, take the Bible in a few minutes, show you the way of salvation from God's word. And you can call in simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ and turn from your sin and turn to Christ in faith. Ask him to forgive you and to save your soul and he will do so. My brothers and sisters in Christ, the invitation is open for you. It may be that you would want to come forward to these steps, turn them into an altar and say, Lord, I want to yield myself to you. Lord, I've been so wrapped up in myself, I have not been looking around. I need to be like the disciples when Jesus said, lift up your eyes and look on their fields. I wonder where their eyes were. But Jesus put their eyes on the harvest. Are your eyes on the harvest? Have they been turned inward and been turned to your own circumstances and troubles? The things that delight you? Maybe instead of the gospel? And if you would like to come and pray, or maybe there's somebody specific, I just burden your heart for their salvation. You'd just like to come and just pray for them. Maybe there's something in your life where you'd say, I know the reason I don't have a heart warm for souls is because there's sin in my heart. And my heart's grown cold toward the need of unbelievers around me. I need to get something right with God and ask God to warm up my heart again. Give me a compassionate love for unbelievers. If that is your need this morning, then let me encourage you to respond as well. Or if you remain where you are standing with, as our music plays, that's between you and God. I just ask that you would respond to God on his terms this morning. Shall we stand with our heads bowed as our pianist begins to play our hymn of invitation? Mm -hmm.